Chapter Eleven of Oscar Wilde: His Life and Confessions. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Geeson. Oscar Wilde: His Life and Confessions, by Frank Harris. Chapter Eleven: The Threatening Cloud Draws Nearer. There is a secret apprehension in man, counselling sobriety and moderation, a fear born of expediency, distinct from conscience which is ethical, though it seems to be closely connected with conscience, acting as it does by warnings and prohibitions. The story of Polycrates and his ring is a symbol of the instinctive feeling that extraordinary good fortune is perilous and cannot endure. A year or so after the first meeting between Oscar Wilde and Lord Alfred Douglas, I heard that they were being pestered on account of some amorous letters which had been stolen from them. There was talk of blackmail and hints of an interesting exposure. Towards the end of the year it was announced that Lord Alfred Douglas had gone to Egypt, but this flight into Egypt, as it was wittily called, was gilded by the fact that a little later he was appointed an honorary attaché to Lord Cromer. I regarded his absence as a piece of good fortune, for when he was in London Oscar had no time to himself, and was seen in public with associates he would have done better to avoid. Time and again he had praised Lord Alfred Douglas to me as a charming person, a poet, and had grown lyrical about his violet eyes and honey-coloured hair. I knew nothing of Lord Alfred Douglas, and had no inkling of his poetic talent. I did not like several of Oscar's particular friends, and I had a special dislike for the father of Lord Alfred Douglas. I knew Queensberry rather well. I was a member of the old Pelican Club, and I used to go there frequently for a talk with Tom, Dick or Harry about athletics, or for a game of chess with George Edwards. Queensberry was there almost every night and someone introduced me to him. I was eager to know him because he had surprised me. At some play, I think it was The Promise of May by Tennyson, produced at the Globe, in which atheists were condemned, he had got up in his box and denounced the play, proclaiming himself an atheist. I wanted to know the Englishman who could be so contemptuous of convention. Had he acted out of aristocratic insolence, or was he by any possibility high-minded? To one who knew the man the mere question must seem ridiculous. Queensbury was perhaps five feet nine or ten in height with a plain, heavy, rather sullen face, and quick, hot eyes. He was a mass of self-conceit, all bristling with suspicion, and in regard to money, prudent to meanness. 
he cared nothing for books but liked outdoor sports and under a rather abrupt but not discourteous manner hid an irritable violent temper he was combative and courageous as very nervous people sometimes are when they happen to be strong-willed the sort of man who just because he was afraid of a bull and had pictured the dreadful wound it could give would therefore seize it by the horns the insane temper of the man got him into rows at the pelican more than once i remember one evening he insulted a man whom i liked immensely hazeltine was a stockbroker i think a big fair handsome fellow who took queensberry's insults for some time with cheerful contempt again and again he turned queensberry's wrath aside with a fair word but queensberry went on working himself into a passion and at last made a rush at him hazeltine watched him coming and hit out in the nick of time he caught queensberry full in the face and literally knocked him heels over head queensberry got up in a sad mess he had a swollen nose and black eye and his shirt was all stained with blood spread about by hasty wiping any other man would have continued the fight or else have left the club on the spot queensberry took a seat at a table and there sat for hours silent i could only explain it to myself by saying that his impulse to fly at once from the scene of his disgrace was very acute and therefore he resisted it made up his mind not to budge and so he sat there the butt of the derisive glances and whispered talk of everyone who came into the club in the next two or three hours he was just the sort of person a wise man would avoid and a clever one would use a dangerous sharp ill-handled tool disliking his father i did not care to meet lord alfred douglas oscar's newest friend i saw oscar less frequently after the success of his first play he no longer needed my editorial services and was besides busily engaged but i have one good tray to record of him some time before i had lent him fifty pounds so long as he was hard up i said nothing about it but after the success of his second play i wrote to him saying that the fifty pounds would be useful to me if he could spare it he sent me a cheque at once with a charming letter he was now continually about again with lord alfred douglas who it appeared had had a disagreement with lord cromer and returned to london almost immediately scandalous stories came into circulation concerning them have you heard the latest about lord alfred and oscar i'm told they're being watched by the police and so forth and so on interminably one day a story came to me with such a wealth of weird detail that it was manifestly at least founded on fact 
Oscar was said to have written extraordinary letters to Lord Alfred Douglas. A youth called Alfred Wood had stolen the letters from Lord Alfred Douglas's rooms in Oxford, and had tried to blackmail Oscar with them. The facts were so peculiar and so precise that I asked Oscar about it. He met the accusation at once, and very fairly, I thought, and told me the whole story. It puts the triumphant power and address of the man in a strong light, and so I will tell it as he told it to me. When I was rehearsing a woman of no importance at the Haymarket, he began, Beerbohm Tree showed me a letter I had written a year or so before to Alfred Douglas. He seemed to think it dangerous, but I laughed at him and read the letter with him, and of course he came to understand it properly. A little later a man called Wood told me he had found some letters which I had written to Lord Alfred Douglas, in a suit of clothes which Lord Alfred had given to him. He gave me back some of the letters, and I gave him a little money. But the letter, a copy of which had been sent to Beerbohm Tree, was not amongst them. Some time afterwards a man named Allen called upon me one night in Tite Street, and said he had got a letter of mine which I ought to have. The man's manner told me that he was the real enemy. I suppose you mean that beautiful letter of mine to Lord Alfred Douglas, I said. If you had not been so foolish as to send a copy of it to Mr. Beerbohm Tree, I should have been glad to have paid you a large sum for it, as I think it is one of the best I ever wrote. Alan looked at me with sulky, cunning eyes, and said, A curious construction could be put upon that letter. No doubt, no doubt, I replied lightly, art is not intelligible to the criminal classes. He looked me in the face defiantly, and said, A man has offered me sixty pounds for it. You should take the offer, I said gravely. Sixty pounds is a great price. I myself have never received such a large sum for any prose work of that length. But I am glad to find that there is someone in England who will pay such a large sum for a letter of mine. I don't know why you come to me, I added, rising. You should sell the letter at once. Of course, Frank, as I spoke, my body seemed empty with fear. The letter could be misunderstood, and I have so many envious enemies. But I felt that there was nothing else for it but bluff. As I went to the door, Alan rose too, and said that the man who had offered him the money was out of town. I turned to him and said, he will no doubt return, and I don't care for the letter at all. At this Alan changed his manner, said he was very poor. He hadn't a penny in the world, and had spent a lot trying to find me and tell me about the letter. I told him I did not mind relieving his distress, and gave him half a sovereign, 
assuring him at the same time that the letter would shortly be published as a sonnet in a delightful magazine i went to the door with him and he walked away i closed the door but didn't shut it at once for suddenly i heard a policeman's step coming softly towards my house pad pad a dreadful moment then he passed by i went into the room again all shaken wondering whether i had done right whether alan would hawk the letter about a thousand vague apprehensions suddenly a knock at the street door my heart was in my mouth still i went and opened it a man named cliburn was there i have come to you with a letter of alan's i cannot be bothered any more i cried about that letter i don't care tuppence about it let him do what he likes with it to my astonishment cliburn said alan has asked me to give it back to you and he produced it why does he give it back to me i asked carelessly he says you were kind to him and that it is no use trying to rent you you only laugh at us i looked at the letter it was very dirty and i said i think it is unpardonable that better care should not have been taken of a manuscript of mine he said he was sorry but it had been in many hands i took the letter up casually well i will accept the letter back you can thank mr allen for me i gave cliburn half a sovereign for his trouble and said to him i am afraid you are leading a desperately wicked life there's good and bad in every one of us he replied i said something about his being a philosopher and he went away that's the whole story frank but the letter i questioned the letter is nothing oscar replied a prose poem i will give you a copy of it here is the letter my own boy your sonnet is quite lovely and it is a marvel that those red rose-leaf lips of yours should be made no less for the madness of music and song than for the madness of kissing your slim gilt soul walks between passion and poetry no hyacinthus followed love so madly as you in greek days why are you alone in london and when do you go to salisbury do go there and cool your hands in the grey twilight of gothic things come here whenever you like it is a lovely place and only lacks you do go to salisbury first always with undying love yours oscar this letter startled me slim guilt and the madness of kissing were calculated to give one pause but after all i thought it may be merely an artist's letter half pose half passionate admiration another thought struck me but how did such a letter i cried ever get into the hands of a blackmailer 
"'I don't know,' he replied, shrugging his shoulders. "'Lord Alfred Douglas is very careless and inconceivably bold. You should know him, Frank. He's a delightful poet.' "'But how did he come to know a creature like Wood?' I persisted. "'How can I tell, Frank?' he answered a little shortly. And I let the matter drop, though it left me in a certain doubt, an uncomfortable suspicion. The scandal grew from hour to hour, and the tide of hatred rose in surges. One day I was lunching at the Savoy, and while talking to the head-waiter, Cesare, who afterwards managed the Elysee Palace Hotel in Paris, I thought I saw Oscar and Douglas go out together. Being a little short-sighted, I asked, "'Isn't that Mr. Oscar Wilde?' "'Yes,' said Cesare, "'and Lord Alfred Douglas. We wish they would not come here. It does us a lot of harm.' "'How do you mean?' I asked sharply. "'Some people don't like them.' The quick Italian answered immediately. "'Oscar Wilde,' I remarked casually, "'is a great friend of mine.' But the super-subtle Italian was already warned. "'A clever writer, I believe,' smiling in bland acquiescence. This incident gave me warning, strengthened again in me the exact apprehension and suspicion which the Douglas letter had bred. Oscar, I knew, was too self-centred, went about too continually with admirers to have any understanding of popular feeling. He would be the last man to realise how fiercely hate, malice and envy were raging against him. I wanted to warn him but hardly knew how to do it effectively and without offence. I made up my mind to keep my eyes open and watch for an opportunity. A little later I gave a dinner at the Savoy and asked him to come. He was delightful, his vivacious gaiety as exhilarating as wine. But he was more like a Roman emperor than ever. He had grown fat. He ate and drank too much. Not that he was intoxicated, but he became flushed, and in spite of his gay and genial talk, he affected me a little unpleasantly. He was gross and puffed up. But he gave one or two splendid snapshots of actors and their egregious vanity. It seemed to him a great pity that actors should be taught to read and write, they should learn their pieces from the lips of the poet. "'Just as work is the curse of the drinking classes of this country,' he said, laughing, "'so education is the curse of the acting classes.' Yet even when making fun of the mummers there was a new tone in him of arrogance and disdain. He used always to be genial and kindly even to those he laughed at. Now he was openly contemptuous. The truth is that his extraordinarily receptive mind went with an even more abnormal receptivity of character. Unlike most men of marked ability, he took colour from his associates. 
in this as in love of courtesies and dislike of coarse words he was curiously feminine intercourse with beardsley for example had backed his humorous gentleness with a sort of challenging courage his new intimacy with lord alfred douglas coming on the top of his triumph as a playwright was lending him aggressive self-confidence there was in him that hubris insolent self-assurance which the greek feared the pride which goeth before destruction i regretted the change in him and was nervously apprehensive after dinner we all went out by the door which gives on the embankment for it was after twelve-thirty one of the party proposed that we should walk for a minute or two at least as far as the strand before driving home oscar objected he hated walking it was a form of penal servitude to the animal in man he declared but he consented nevertheless under protest laughing when we were going up the steps to the strand he again objected and quoted dante's famous lines tu proverai si come sadisale lo pane altrui e come duro calle lo scendere il salir per l'altrui scale readers translation you will discover how salty tastes another's bread and how steep it is trailing up and down another's staircase the impression made by oscar that evening was not only of self-indulgence but of overconfidence i could not imagine what had given him this insolent self-complacence i wanted to get by myself and think prosperity was certainly doing him no good all the while the opposition to him i felt was growing in force how could i verify this impression i asked myself so as to warn him effectually i decided to give a lunch to him and on purpose i put on the invitations to meet mr oscar wilde and hear a new story out of a dozen invitations sent out to men seven or eight were refused three or four telling me in all kindness that they would rather not meet oscar wilde this confirmed my worst fears when englishmen speak out in this way the dislike must be near revolt i gave the lunch and saw plainly enough that my forebodings were justified oscar was more self-confident more contemptuous of criticism more gross of body than ever but his talk did not suffer indeed it seemed to improve at this lunch he told the charming fable of narcissus which is certainly one of his most characteristic short stories when narcissus died the flowers of the field were plunged in grief and asked the river for drops of water that they might mourn for him oh replied the river if only my drops of water were tears i should not have enough to weep for narcissus myself i loved him 
how could you help loving narcissus said the flowers so beautiful was he was he beautiful asked the river who should know that better than you said the flowers for every day lying on your bank he would mirror his beauty in your waters oscar paused here and then went on if i loved him replied the river it is because when he hung over me i saw the reflection of my own loveliness in his eyes after lunch i took him aside and tried to warn him told him that unpleasant stories were being put about against him but he paid no heed to me all envy frank and malice what do i care i go to clumber this summer besides i'm doing another play which i rather like i always knew that playwriting was my province as a youth i tried to write plays in verse that was my mistake now i know better i'm sure of myself and of success somehow or other in spite of his apparent assurance i felt he was in danger and i doubted his quality as a fighter but after all it was not my business wilful man must have his way it seems to me now that my mistrust dated from the second paper war with whistler wherein to the astonishment of everyone oscar did not come off victorious as soon as he met with opposition his power of repartee seemed to desert him and whistler using mere rudeness and man-of-the-world sharpness held the field oscar was evidently not a born fighter i asked him once how it was he let whistler off so lightly he shrugged his shoulders and showed some irritation what could i say frank why should i belabour the beaten the man is a wasp and delights in using his sting i have done more perhaps than any one to make him famous i had no wish to hurt him was it magnanimity or weakness or as i think a constitutional a feminine shrinking from struggle and strife whatever the cause it was clear that oscar was what shakespeare called himself an unhurtful opposite it is quite possible that if he had been attacked face to face oscar would have given a better account of himself at mrs grenfell's now lady desborough he crossed swords once with the prime minister and came off victorious mr asquith began by bantering him in appearance lightly in reality seriously for putting many of his sentences in italics the man who uses italics said the politician is like the man who raises his voice in conversation and talks loudly in order to make himself heard it was the well-known objection which emerson had taken to carlyle's overwrought style pointed probably by dislike of the way oscar monopolized conversation oscar met the stereotyped attack with smiling good humour 
how delightful of you mr asquith to have noticed that the brilliant phrase like good wine needs no bush but just as the orator marks his good things by a dramatic pause or by raising or lowering his voice or by gesture so the writer marks his epigrams with italics setting the little gem so to speak like a jeweller an excusable love of one's art not all mere vanity i like to think all this with the most pleasant smile and manner in measure as i distrusted oscar's fighting power and admired his sweetness of nature i took sides with him and wanted to help him one day i heard some talk at the pelican club which filled me with fear for him and quickened my resolve to put him on his guard i was going in just as queensbury was coming out with two or three of his special cronies i'll do it i heard him cry i'll teach the fellow to leave my son alone i'll not have their names coupled together i caught a glimpse of the thrust out combative face and the hot grey eyes what's it all about i asked only queensbury said someone swearing he'll stop oscar wilde going about with that son of his alfred douglas suddenly my fears took form as in a flash i saw oscar heedless and smiling walking along with his head in the air and that violent combative insane creature pouncing on him i sat down at once and wrote begging oscar to lunch with me the next day alone as i had something important to say to him he turned up in park lane manifestly anxious a little frightened i think what is it frank i told him very seriously what i had heard and gave besides my impression of queensbury's character and his insane pugnacity what can i do frank said oscar showing distress and apprehension it's all bosey who is bosey i asked that is lord alfred douglas's pet name it's all bosey's fault he has quarrelled with his father or rather his father has quarrelled with him he quarrels with everyone with lady queensbury with percy douglas with bosey everyone he's impossible what can i do avoid him i said don't go about with lord alfred douglas give queensbury his triumph you could make a friend of him as easily as possible if you wished write him a conciliatory letter but he'll want me to drop bosey and stop seeing lady queensbury and i like them all they are charming to me why should i cringe to this madman because he is a madman oh frank i can't he cried bosey wouldn't let me wouldn't let you i repeated angrily how absurd that queensbury man will go to violence to any extremity don't you fight other people's quarrels you may have enough of your own some day 
you're not sympathetic frank he chided weakly i know you mean it kindly but it's impossible for me to do as you advise i cannot give up my friend i really cannot let lord queensbury choose my friends for me it's too absurd but it's wise i replied there's a very bad verse in one of hugo's plays it always amused me he likens poverty to a low door and declares that when we have to pass through it the man who stoops lowest is the wisest so when you meet a madman the wisest thing to do is to avoid him and not quarrel with him it's very hard frank of course i'll think over what you say but really queensbury ought to be in a madhouse he's too absurd and in that spirit he left me outwardly self-confident he might have remembered chaucer's words beware also to spurn again a nal strive not as do the crocker with a wall dame thyself but damest others dead and troth he shall deliver it is no dread end of chapter eleven recording by martin geeson in hazelmere surrey